0: To women who hoped to evade the ticking clock of time, Dr. Frederick Brandt was the most potent drug dealer in the world. And the dealer got high on his own supply. From Imperative Entertainment and the team behind Broken Hearts comes a new series that will challenge everything you know about fame, fortune, and the fear of growing old. I'm Justine Harmon, and this is The Baron of Botox. John Pfeffer is director of foreign policy in focus at the Institute for Policy Studies, the editor of Lobalog, and a Tom Dispatch regular, contributor to The Nation as well, author of several books, including Crusade 2.0, more than a pleasure to, pleasure, right, pleasure to have John Pfeffer with us. John, good afternoon and welcome, and a belated Happy New Year. How are you?
1: <laughs> Fine. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: Uh, John, you wrote a piece entitled The European Union May Be on the Verge of Collapse. That obviously makes some people happy. Uh, And and some people might say, well, is the EU on the verge of collapse? And if so, what makes that so? I mean, people look at a a country like Greece and see uh, that verge of collapse, but then again, look at a Germany and see uh, a lot of success.
1: Well, that's true. Germany, if you're in Germany today and you look out at your country and at the EU, things look pretty good. I mean, the economy for Germany is doing reasonably well. The European uh, expansion has benefited Germany. But if you go beyond Germany, things don't look so great. Uh, Europe as a whole has seen its economic growth really slow down tremendously. And in some parts of the, of the continent, particularly on the periphery in Greece and Uh, Spain, Portugal, the economies have bottomed out terribly, and a lot of people there associate that with the European Union.
0: When the United States looks to the EU, and you say if you're standing there in Germany and looking at us, we may not be doing as well as Germany, but we as a nation are definitely doing better than the EU, than the Union of these European countries, correct? Correct.
1: That's correct. And in part, that's because, you know, we haven't imposed the kind of austerity on our economic system as the European Union has. So they've kind of launched into this, unfortunately, a kind of deflationary spiral. And we're doing reasonably well with economic growth. That isn't to say we're doing fabulously, but in comparison, we're doing reasonably well. But
0: looking at the European Union, now hindsight's always 2020. 20. Was this a bad idea? There are many people overseas that say, yes, this was a bad idea. My best friend lives in London, you know, and she, and she and many others are saying, I told you so. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, really depends. I mean, you ask people, for instance, if they like being able to travel around the European Union without showing their passport, absolutely. You talk to folks in Eastern Europe uh, that have now the opportunity to go and work in Germany or or England, absolutely. But you talk to some other folks, uh, they're not so happy. Uh, They're not happy about the movement of labor uh, because they perceive it as taking away their jobs or maybe being a, a burden on their social welfare system. They're not happy about the, uh, the loss of sovereignty when it comes to being able to make economic decisions. That holds true for anybody within the EU, but it holds true especially for folks within the Eurozone. So, uh, you know, the EU and the expansion is a mixed bag. It brought some benefits, and it also had some costs. Let's
0: talk about benefits. Let's talk about costs. Which do you prefer starting with?
1: Let's talk about benefits. Okay. Um, i mean clear benefits for uh some of the countries that joined the EU early on, definitely, in the first phases of expansion. Because there's a deal. When you come into the EU, you get access to stabilization funds. You get access to money that can help you grow your economy. And that was a tremendous value for countries coming in, like uh, Ireland, Spain, when it first came in. Uh, for the later comers, it didn't get such a great deal. Um, they weren't uh, able to, for instance, come up to the same level as everyone else in Europe. But they still had some access to those stabilization funds. So if you visit Eastern Europe today, the later members of the European Union, you do see signs all over the place, paid for by EU, paid for by EU, for roads, for rehabilitation of buildings and so forth. So those are benefits. And as I said, for folks who are having difficulty finding jobs in Eastern Europe, and the unemployment rate in that region is quite high, the ability to go and, and find a job somewhere else is, is a tremendous virtue.
0: Well, let's talk about those. Are, you know, some of the pros, benefits. Let's talk about the cons. Obviously, uh, there are many right now.
1: Mm-hmm. So if you are, for instance, a finance minister in a European Union membership member country, uh, you don't have very many tools at your disposal to bring your country out of an economic downturn. Here in the United States, you know, there might be some difficulties between the administration and Congress, and there have been, over what the proper mix should be, but the United States basically doesn't have to listen to any other country. It is free to exercise its own sovereign rights. But in the EU, you know, that finance minister has to keep his budget within a certain uh, band, so to speak, uh, cannot, for instance, engage in the kind of deficit spending that, according to Keynes, for instance, will help your pull your economy out of a depression or a recession. They just don't have those tools available to them. And that can be deeply frustrating, uh, especially if uh, not only... You, are you not able to engage in deficit spending? But as in Greece or as in Spain, you're being told you have to slash government services and throw huge numbers of people out of work uh, and also deprive them of the kind of government services that they expected, whether health care or pensions or what have you. And so that is a major negative. And that's why there is a kind of consensus uh, on the left and the right. Uh, it's not just. Um, on one side or the other of the political spectrum, a political consensus in Greece, for instance, that uh, the EU simply has taken away the ability of Greeks to make those important economic decisions by themselves.
0: Uh, and you had written, quote, the complex federal project of the EU has proven fragile in the absence of a strong external threat. Speak to us uh, about that. What, what What is that strong external threat that you are referring to, the absence of such?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the EU managed to come together in, after World War II, largely because of the threat of Soviet communism. We have to remember, coming out of World War II, these, are, these were countries that had a, a long, long history of animosity and bloodshed, France and Germany, for instance. And yet, because of the external threat of the Soviet Union and the pressure by the United States for these countries to cooperate, they were able to put together at first a couple of economic agreements and then to build on that and create an economic uh, community, an economic European community. Um, And that threat held basically, for the entire Cold War. But with the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union, that threat disappeared. And there were other kind of smaller threats that emerged, um, the breakdown, for instance, of Yugoslavia, um, the rise of nationalism elsewhere, um, the pressures outside of Europe. But nothing was comparable to the threat of the Soviet Union as a kind of a... um, uh, a rationale for Europeans to hang together.
0: All right, we're going to take a break. We'll be back with our guest. We hope you will as well. Like I said, if you have questions or comments, 8886 Leslie, 8886537543. John Pfeffer joins us. You can follow him on Twitter at John Pfeffer, F E F F E R. The website for The Nation is TheNation.com. Back with our guest, John Pfeffer, Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies and also a contributor to The Nation and author of several books I just talked to you about, uh, not talked to you, but mentioned, Crusade 2.0. John, we were just talking out there. We'd like to have you on just about your book in the future, uh, not sure. just on this uh, column and on this issue. In the column entitled, you got to check it out at thenation.com, the European Union may be on the verge of uh, collapse. Um, let's also talk about perhaps worldwide The strength or lack of uh, in Europe and not just economically. I I think we forget how big the world around Europe and the United States, uh, as examples, uh, truly is and how much Mm -hmm. of an economic uh, force and power it is to be reckoned with.
1: Yes. Well, you know, uh, people forget that the European Union is, in fact, the largest economic entity in the world. It has a larger GDP collectively than China or the United States. It's the largest uh, trading power in the world. And this is, uh, you know, the, the great bargain that the countries in Europe have made, essentially. Uh, initially, of course, as I said, it was uh, out of, in some sense, fear of the Soviet Union that they banded together, uh, and the threat of Soviet economic strength. But it was also because by banding together, they could become more prosperous. And the European Union did become tremendously prosperous. And as long as that prosperity continued, it's provided an even stronger argument for countries to want to join the EU. So it was a kind of a virtuous circle. But unfortunately, when the EU no longer can kind of offer continuing prosperity, in other words, when European integration is associated with austerity rather than prosperity, then I think uh, you see rising what we call Euroskepticism. In other words, individuals and groups Saying, hey, you know, the, the deal doesn't work for us anymore, and we either want to dilute the European Union to the point when it doesn't really function any longer, or we want to withdraw from it. And I think that's what we're seeing today.
0: Let's talk about some questions that we have posted on Twitter. Some people uh, like to call in, some like to listen, and some uh, like uh, to ask uh, to, to ask via Twitter. Um, over and over and over, I'm getting on Twitter, you know this is about socialism, this is about socialists, this is about comp- uh, countries like in the EU that have big uh, government uh, mentality. And you say?
1: Uh, well, uh, yes. I mean, and to a certain extent, that's true. Europe, uh, the European Union, was founded by social democrats, and it, uh, and some of them considered themselves socialists, and they saw themselves as an alternative, in some sense, to communism as the Soviets understood it, as well as laissez-faire capitalism as both the United States and, to a certain degree, uh, England thought of themselves. But that changed. Uh, It changed basically after the end of the Cold War. It changed in part because of the influence of globalization. And you saw Uh, even socialist leaders like Francois Mitterrand embrace an entirely different kind of economic model. So today what we see in the European Union, uh, particularly in the European Union, it's different from country to country, of course, but within the European Union you have a very different uh, economic mentality today than you had, say, 30 years ago. And I wouldn't call it socialist. It really is uh, in in a uh, in a sense, much closer to the the Washington consensus model that we developed here, emphasizing less government and removing uh, regulations uh, from. The marketplace, to unleash the market. So that's uh, much more of the prevailing attitude. You can find, of course, in any given country, uh, less socialism or more socialism. But in the EU as a whole, I would say the economic philosophy has changed tremendously over the last 25 years.
0: Uh, also, just a lot of questions and a lot of comments. Uh, Gary tweets, a safety net that when we ask what's contributing to the issues of the economic decline in the EU, beyond Germany, as we had talked about, a safety net that has become a safety hammock, uh, too much uh, government intrusion into the private sector. And I think that's what everybody's talking about on here when they talk about socialism, socialism. Um, also, Kiri talking about uh, the influence in government. Uh, that places unfair advantages over the rest of us, uh, speaking to the economic hardship of most of the countries except for Germany in the EU.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there definitely is a different economic system in many of the countries in Europe than in the United States. Much more of a commitment, for instance, to universal health care, greater commitment to uh, retraining of workers. Uh that has created up until recently a much more harmonious, one could argue, uh, economic system. Even in Germany. Remember, Germany is, is has been led by Christian Democrats for uh... for the last decade or more and they are, would not consider themselves socialists by any stretch of the imagination but still in germany there's much greater commitment than in the united states for instance to uh... maternity leave to providing uh, the kind of social services that enable women to uh transition back into the workplace, uh, much greater commitment to uh, coordination between trade unions and management than we would have here in the United States. Uh, All Germans across this political spectrum, whether they consider themselves left or right, would Basically, say that's the kind of social model we want, um, and they're willing to pay for it. Now, of course, Germany happens to have a, a prospering economy at the moment, so you could quibble about that. But I think you find that kind of attitude more consistently in Europe than you would here, where it really is a, a politically divisive question.
0: Uh, most definitely. How, how, how can this be dismantled if, the, if that is the only solution for the EU? I mean, it can't just be dissolved overnight. It
1: wasn't created overnight. That's correct. And I, I should emphasize here that there are plenty of, of people who are perfectly happy with the EU as it exists. Uh, We are seeing, as I said, a rise of Euroskepticism. We've seen, for instance, the People's Party in Denmark, or the National Front in France, or the UK Independence Party, and of course Syriza in Greece, all of which have expressed at one point or another skepticism of the European project. But they don't necessarily all agree with one another. Some of them are just unhappy with austerity measures, and are perfectly okay with the European Union otherwise. Others, want to see the dismantlement of the European Union altogether or their own country's withdrawal. As these uh, parties get closer to political power, they tend to moderate their positions. In other words, if they had previously said, uh, we want out of the European Union, as they get closer to power, they start saying, well, we don't necessarily want pull out but we do want to see some changes i think what we will see in the interim in other words in the short term is some rethinking about the eurozone and about what countries commitments are we will probably see some renegotiation of the debt question particularly with greece probably with spain as well and that will have inevitable implications for other countries and we may, at some point in the near future, see a test case. Uh, one country, maybe it would be England. Uh, it might be France, if Marine Le Pen of the National Front wins the presidency in 2017. Uh, we might see that country test the waters and say, hey, we want to pull out of the EU. And that will be an interesting step, because we'll see whether all the other countries will see that as a wake-up call and recognize all the virtues and the benefits that they've gotten from the European Union.
0: Um, Larry says imperfect we may be but America has created more opportunity and raised more people from poverty than any other nation in history true
1: uh, no <laughs> <laughs> I mean China if we're talking about sheer numbers China has taken bought more people out of poverty wow. um, but and that's uh, communist
0: and that's communism that's even more government intervention <laughs> which would spit but in that- the face of the idea of these people on Twitter that's saying it's socialism right
1: that's that's true um, I mean I, I don't want to diminish the the successes the American economic system has had over the 200-plus years. But if we're looking at sheer numbers, it would be China. And if we're looking at um, uh, uh, an economic system that has been able to create more equitable economic progress, in other words, economic progress that has been spread more evenly across society, Europe has been more successful than the United States. Our inequality uh, numbers here in the United States, unfortunately, don't. Uh, compare favorably to Europe
0: at the moment. Uh, Most definitely. And continuing on for some of uh, these uh, comments, but my computer is uh, not, uh, I wanted to ask, if one country breaks away, I know you say we'll have to see, what would your prediction be on that?
1: Uh, Which country it would be?
0: Yeah, no, not which country. Well, I guess two things, yeah. Which do you think, you know, would be the country that go first? You know, would it be France? Um, And uh, do you think if one goes away, the others follow suit, it'll have that domino effect? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, uh, possibly the most likely country would be France. the United Kingdom, only because there is a tradition there of, uh, well, first of all, they're separated kind of geographically from the rest of Europe, and there's more of a tradition there of uh, of skepticism that cuts across the political spectrum. Um, If they were to leave, my guess is that... uh, the other countries, unless, I mean, it, it, it really depends on circumstances. If we're talking about an economic downturn in general, uh, mm, countries might perceive the withdrawal of a, of a country like England as, uh, as you know, something to emulate, uh, because, you know, this is, this they would rather strike off on their own and figure out their own way out of their economic crisis. Um, but if it's a period of relative economic progress, then I think all the other countries would see the European Union as a vehicle for improving their own economy, even at the expense of their own sovereignty.
0: Uh, Thank you uh, for being with us today. And like I said, we'll have you on again. I want to talk to you about uh, your book. Sounds intriguing. Got to get that to read. Uh, John Pfeffer, Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies, editor of Lobelog.com, and a dispatch, Tom Dispatch, regular. contributed to the nation for the piece we just talked about, author of Crusade 2.0, The West's Resurgent War on Islam, available on Amazon.